This is the Calvary Bible Church Podcast. Thanks for listening in today. We're praying this message encourages you. Learn more about Calvary and join us online each Sunday for services at calvarybible.com. Hey, thanks for tuning in to worship with us at Calvary Bible Church on this Independence Day weekend. We just sang, the Lord is the source of our freedom, freedom from sin, freedom to belong to God. And we live in this country and experience freedom unlike so much of the rest of the world. Even though our world is in a bit of chaos right now, we're going to talk together this morning about how to pray for our world, our nation, and our city. We've been talking through what it means to walk in the way that Jesus walked. And we're going to continue that this morning, particularly in the issue of prayer, how we pray together. And I want to talk about how to pray for our nation. Last week, after I illustrated that what if we imagined praying like a text, I got a text from a friend of mine from the Boulder campus named Harv, and Harvey sent me a picture of his phone, at least he described it, and it may have looked something like this. He said, I have a contact in my phone list, and I wrote in, Our Father in Heaven, and then the telephone number is Jeremiah 33, and that says, um, If you call on me, I will hear you. Call to me and I will answer you. And that's on Harv's contact list. I love that he put that in there. Because for us, praying is like talking to Jesus and believing that he hears us when we pray. Jeremiah wrote that in Jeremiah 33 And verse 3, thus says the Lord God who made the earth, the Lord who formed and established it, the Lord is his name. Call to me and I will answer you and I will tell you great and hidden things that you do not know. That's a promise from Jeremiah to his people when they were in a difficult time. And it just underscores God's desire to hear from his people that we would be people so filled with prayer that we commune with him every day. Because that came from Jeremiah, I got thinking about another sort of famous verse in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 29.7. And it got me thinking about the way we should be praying for our nation. If you remember, Jeremiah is the story of a prophet who is raised up to talk to the nation Israel when as a nation, they were disobedient to God. Nations are important to God. The Bible says, let the nations be glad. Let the nations believe who God is. Israel as a nation had been disobedient. So God, after much uh, longing for his people, brought them into judgment. And they were overtaken by the nation of Babylon. Uh, The Babylonians came and brought captive many of the Jews, among them Daniel and Jeremiah. And Jeremiah speaks to the nation Israel in captivity these words from Jeremiah 29. I want you to settle down. I want you to live in that city of Babylon for all the years you'll be in captivity. It's going to be 70 years. Settle down, plant gardens, build houses, give your children in marriage. You're going to be there a while. And then verse 7 of Jeremiah 29 has these strategic words for the nation of Israel 
in one of its most chaotic seasons. Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare you will find welfare. That was the word to Israel in captivity, in exile. Pray to the Lord on behalf of the city that you're living because if the city prospers, you will prosper. That tone from God to his people to pray for the city where they lived is always God's plan for his people to pray for the place that he has them so that they would become a city on a hill, a light before those who don't yet know God, that his people would live distinctly in the place God sends them. They were exiles. It wasn't their home. They were going to return to Jerusalem. It was like they were longing for their great city, Jerusalem, but they were stuck in Babylon. What should they do? Pray. In a very real sense, we're not in our home yet either. We are living in Babylon. In fact, where we live today is more like Babylon than it is Jerusalem. And exile is a good word. We're not really at home here on earth, and we're actually on our way to heaven. So what should we do while we live in Erie or Boulder or Thornton, whatever city you find yourself in, what would God say to us on Independence Weekend? In a word, it's pray for the city in which you live. Do you remember when Jesus stood over Jerusalem and he said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how long I've prayed for you that you would follow me, but you wouldn't. I think the Bible calls us in the New Testament to pray for our city. To see it, I want you to open your Bible with me to 1 Timothy chapter 2. And now we're going to listen to the Apostle Paul give some words to Timothy, who was living in the city of Ephesus, a great city in the first century that is now unknown. It's lost. But in the city of Ephesus, there was a church. Timothy led it, and Paul wrote this letter to Timothy and said, here's what I want you to do with the church on behalf of the city of Ephesus for the empire in which you live. And so we take up verse one of chapter two. First of all then, I urge that supplication, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for all people. It's as if Paul is saying to Timothy, the very first thing when it comes to what the church should do in the city in which you live is to pray. Pray for all people. Pray prayers, supplications. The word supplication has this idea that there is a need that needs to be met, and so you're going to go to God for that need. Intercession means to come alongside and be with someone. So it's as if prayer brings God alongside a need. And the giving of thanks, these are all four repetitious but distinct words by which Paul is urging Timothy to urge the church to pray for your city and for your nation. Pray on its behalf. In its welfare, you will find welfare. So there's this call to pray. Verse 2 says, particularly, I want you to pray for kings and for all who are in high positions that we may lead peaceful and quiet lives, godly and dignified in every way. It's fascinating that Paul 
tells Timothy to guide the church to pray for kings, for those in authority. Because Paul understands that there is an authority over every earthly authority. We need to pray for our kings, for our presidents, for our governors, senators, representatives, mayors, council people. It's as if Paul is saying, I urge you to pray on behalf of all those who have positions of authority over you. There is no authority that is established that has not been ordained by God, Romans 13, 1 says. And so we pray for those who rule over us and our leaders need prayer. Would you agree? And we're living a day in which leadership is so confused and so diluted and so corrupted that we need to pray on behalf of everyone in positions of high authority and um, that begs the question, what should we pray on behalf of kings and presidents and queens and prime ministers and governors and senators? What should we pray for them in this day and age? We pray supplications, meet their needs. We pray intercession, God be near them. God, thank you that they are in positions of leadership. Will you help them? I was thinking, what do our leaders in our cities and in our nation and in the world need most today really comes down to three things. Our leaders need a fear of God. Where there is a fear of God and the awareness that there is another authority over us, an authority from which we derive our position of authority, the ultimate lawgiver there's a, a more likelihood to have peace and prosperity and justice and mercy and compassion and the needs of its people met. So we pray for our president and vice president and governors and senators that they would fear God. Where there is no fear of God, there is no fear of an ultimate lawgiver. And therefore, there is increasing lawlessness, which is exactly what we see today. If there's one thing you can with certainty pray for everyone in positions of high authority today is that they might fear God. We need that. And the church has the unique opportunity to be the instrument of grace, asking God to bring a reverence for God to everyone who leads in position of authority. Second thing that demands is that we pray for humility in our leaders. There is so much hubris in Washington and in most places of leadership in our country. And God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. So while you're praying for our leaders in every capacity in our country, pray that they would be humble and they would be reverent to God and they would be broken before him and acknowledge that without God's help, they cannot rule because God is the ultimate authority to which every authority on earth will ultimately answer. And if there's a third prayer request that we should pray for all of our leaders is that they would have wisdom. Wisdom to know what to do in the complexity of our world, in the ways in which uh, people are divided and disrupted and experience injustice and oppression. 
We, we need to pray for wisdom because the policies that have been made have only led to a greater sense of confusion in our world and our leaders need wisdom. And it's the call of the church, first of all then, to make prayers and supplication on behalf of kings and all those in authority that it might result in a peaceful life. That's the way Paul drew it up. You pray in this way for our leaders that it may result in a certain kind of culture that's peaceable and quiet and we could live in it. That's not what we're experiencing today. So on this Independence Day, when there is very little sense of freedom and there's conflict and division and injustice, I want to call the church to walk in the steps of Jesus and the Apostle Paul and to pray on behalf of kings. Now, I've just given you a picture of what we should pray for. And the Bible is filled with all kinds of examples when kings and those in authority did not live that way. There's one exceptional, exceptional glimpse of a king in the Old Testament who was anything but God-fearing and anything but humble and therefore anything but wise. He's found in Daniel chapter 4. His name is Nebuchadnezzar. And Daniel, one of the Israelites in captivity, interprets a dream for him and tells him, if you don't repent and shape up and humble yourself before God, God is going to take away your kingdom. And Nebuchadnezzar serves as a picture of anyone in a position of authority who has so much hubris that he cannot hear from God. And Daniel chapter 4 has a picture of Daniel warning Nebuchadnezzar, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there might perhaps be a prolonging of your prosperity and reign. That's what Daniel told King Nebuchadnezzar. You need to humble yourself. Stop sinning. Care for the oppressed. If you know the story, Nebuchadnezzar did not listen to Daniel's word. And then 12 months later, while Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the palace roof, looking over the city of Babylon and all of his kingdom, he spoke these words out loud. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Can you imagine a ruler looking over his empire and taking such credit for everything that he did there? And while the words were still in his mouth, a voice came out of heaven and said, O oh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. And you will be driven out among men and your dwelling will be with the wild beasts of the field. And so that's exactly what happened. He was driven out from among men and he ate grass like an ox and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as the eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. He received immediate judgment from God for his lack of fear, for his pride and arrogance. Nations matter to God. Leadership matters to God. The church is called to pray for leaders. What beautiful resolution came for King Nebuchadnezzar. 
is that sometime eventually he humbled himself to God and his reason returned to him and the glory of his kingdom returned. And he said, my counselors and my Lord sought me and I was established again in my kingdom. And now I, King Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and I honor the king of heaven for all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride, he's able to humble. Listen, I just share this snapshot of one king in the Old Testament who desperately needed prayer and God interceded in his life with some judgment mixed in. But when I read the New Testament and I hear Paul calling the church to pray on behalf of leaders, I'm listening on this Independence Day. And I want to call you to walk in the steps of those who went before us and to pray for all people, especially those in authority around us. And you might ask the question, why should we do that? That's wrapped up again in the answer of 1 Timothy chapter 2. So if we turn back there, we can see why would we want to pray that we live a peaceable and quiet life? We pick it up in verse 3. Verse 3 says, this is good and this is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We pray that we would have a culture that is a certain way so that the gospel could be preached, so that the truth about Jesus could be known. I love that phrase. Um, we, we pray this way because it's good. In the sight of God, it honors him. And he wants all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. It's a great deal of confusion about what truth is today. In fact, truth is up for grabs. There is a cultural norm in which we live today and the norm goes something like this. What's true for you might not be true for me and what's my truth might not be your truth. The whole definition of truth is confused. What is it? Who has it? And some people believe that truth is something that can be determined by us by each person individually. In other words, um, I have the right to decide what's true for me and you have the right to decide what's true for you. Um, this way of determining truth is completely the opposite of what the Bible presents. The Bible presents that truth is actually discovered by us, but it's not determined by us. We discover the truth when we come to know the creator who has set everything in its place. Determining what's truth is very different than discovering what's truth. God says, I want you to pray for your leaders that the culture would be such that if possible, it could be peaceable and quiet so that the gospel could be preached because God desires that all men and women would come to understand what the truth is. And then he explains the truth. And he explains the truth in verse 5 and 6. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all. 
which is the testimony given at the proper time. Here's the truth. Here's what's really truth that the world needs to know more than anything. There's one God. There's one mediator between God and man. It's the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom. I love where Paul's going here. I want you to pray for your culture. I want you to pray for your city. I want you to pray for your nation. Why? Because those in authority need to fear God and have wisdom and humility that if possible, the culture might erupt into a peacefully quiet place where the gospel can be preached. Most of history has not known this, but still the word is to pray for our cities that we could preach the gospel and that people would know the truth. And the truth is wrapped up in this. There is a God who created everything. He has a son named Jesus. And his son came into the world to be the one in between holy creator God and lost, broken, sinful, wounded mankind. He's the mediator that reconciles these two groups. This is the good news. This is the good news, the way in which the church promotes the very message about Jesus, that God sent his son into the world. We talk about the gospel a lot, but the gospel can be summarized in a couple of ideas. One, it's the gospel is the news about grace. And grace is simply that Jesus took our place and he came into the world to be a substitute and to offer his life as the forgiveness for our sins. And he did that because he loves us. And he loves us even though we are sinners. The grace of the gospel is that Christ came to take our place. And he lived the life that we could not live. And he died the death that we deserved. Because he loves us. Because his grace is on us. And by trusting in Jesus alone, sinners are forgiven. And we are credited with the righteousness of Jesus himself. Salvation through Jesus says, I am totally accepted by Jesus. He receives me as I am. And therefore, my life is for him. All man-made religions are different. They have the banner over them, I must obey so that God will accept me. Christianity is different. Salvation through Jesus is, I know that Jesus sees me as I am, a sinner and broken, and he receives me as I am, and he forgives me where I am, and he gives me his righteousness. Did you hear that? That's the gospel of the good news, that God sent his son into the world to bring sinners into relationship with him because it's so graciously good news. God sees you where you are. He loves you where you are. He will forgive you right where you are. But he would never dream of leaving you where you are. And that's the second thing about the gospel. The gospel leads to a transformed life, to a change on the inside that comes from knowing him. If man-made religion says, I've got to try and try and try harder and harder, and hopefully God will accept me, the gospel of Jesus Christ is God sees you as you are, and he will change you by his indwelling presence and spirit within you. That's what he will give to you. Religion says, I will keep trying by my power to gain God's approval. 
And the good news of the gospel is that the gospel to save is the power of God to come into my life and change me. Have you been changed by the gospel, the good news? So that when you hear Paul say there's one God, one mediator, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself for you. I pray your heart's opening up to him. The last part of the gospel I would say is that the gospel has this intention of ushering in a new kingdom world. Jesus' kingdom is not of this world. So we talk about kingdoms and kings and rulers, but the kingdom of Christ is not of this world, but his people called out of the world become a new kind of people who take on his mind. Uh, My friend Chris put it this way, when Christ came into the world, he won salvation through losing and he achieved power and victory through weakness and service and he becomes unspeakably rich by giving up his life And now everyone who knows him lives this same kind of life, a self-emptying that leads to filling, a dying to self that leads to really life eternal. It's it's bringing yourself low to pick up the towel and be the servant that you become the leader. It's everything in reverse. It's the kingdom of God. He's the king. This is the message of the gospel. And we become a kingdom of followers of Jesus who walk in his way. This is the good news of the gospel. And that kingdom is what we pray for. Our Father who out in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. What's his will? His will is that we would be that kind of person who walk in his way. And then we influence the culture. A lot of people wonder, how's the church going to influence culture? Should we retreat from it? Build a fortress? Should we rail against it? And and be aggressively trying to change it? Or should we be the presence of Jesus in it as a fragrance? That's what I pray we'll be on this Independence Day weekend, that our freedom in Christ would lead to a freedom in living that would really be transformational for Boulder and for Erie and for Thornton and for wherever you are. Listen, God calls us to pray for our city, to pray for our nation. They need it and we need it. And we just pray, Lord, let it begin in us that we would walk in the steps of Jesus in humility, in wisdom, in the fear of God, and then come and transform our lives, our families, our church, our neighborhood, our city, and our world, and begin in us that your freedom would come to us and extend to everyone we touch. I'm praying that for us. Let's bow our heads together. God, I thank you that nations are important to you, cities are important to you, families are important to you, churches are important to you, and you have given us a way to walk, to follow you. And we know we've been disobedient. We've failed in so many ways. We look around our world and there's so much trouble and and suffering and oppression and injustice and pride. And Lord, I pray that as the church gathers on this day to pray for our cities, to pray for our nations, to pray for ourselves, 
that you would hear our prayer from heaven. We call out to you, please answer us. Heal our life, heal our family, heal our land. Do a work to bring your true freedom through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Begin in us and move it through everywhere you will send us. This is what we pray for. To you who are able to do exceedingly and abundantly beyond what we could ask or think. And certainly some of these prayer requests feel beyond the ability to accomplish, but we have seen your hand do it. So we pray, do it again, God, for your glory. And all God's people said, amen. God be with you this week.